Welcome to our new podcast series focused on behaviour change. At InDiverse Company, we help organisations to create inclusive cultures that are not just good for people, but good for business too. This podcast series will tell the story of real behaviour change relating to the development of inclusive and anti-racist behaviours. We'll follow the journey of mindset change from a scientific lens of a behaviour change specialist to stories of impact at an individual, business and leadership level. And finally, to understanding how important communication and language is, especially in engaging people on this journey. We're starting off with a conversation between Johanna Beresford, CEO of Indiverse Company, and Sean Williams Eliashal. He is a social and organisational psychologist. Sean currently works as a doctoral researcher at UCL for the Institute of Innovation and Public Purpose, and also works for the Qatar Foundation as a culture and integration expert. I'll hand over to Johanna and Sean to get started. I'm here today to ask a series of questions and really start to explore some of the concepts around how do you drive successful behaviour change, particularly in an organisational context. Sean, could I hand over to you just to give a little um, background about yourself um, and your experience? My name is Sean williams Eliashal. And I am um, a specialist in behaviour change, and specifically, I look at collaborative behaviour. I spent the last 15 years both researching and working with organisations to really focus in on the field of collaborative behaviour in action. So what I, what I do is I think about how we can take the latest thinking from academic research and actually put it to use in organisations. And so I'm currently working um, with a large international NGO based in the Middle East, but I'm also conducting doctoral research at UCL's Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, um, where I'm looking at sort of how we can leverage more effective forms of collaboration to solve um, or find collaborative solutions to our society's grand challenges. Thank you so much for that, for that, Sean. Um, I wanted to kind of start with a question around the, the challenges of, of behaviour change. And from the work that, that we've done and, and my background, it we know that it is hard for human beings to change the way that they're behaving. Um, and a lot of that stemmed, obviously, from belief systems, attitudes. Um, and I was wondering if you could really talk to the to the point around what challenges, why you think behaviour change can sometimes be so difficult, both at an individual and organisational level. And what are the things that could be put in place to really kind of build a platform within an organisation to start to drive positive behaviour change? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think it's important to to set out before that exactly what we mean by behaviour change, because I think for me, um, behaviour change within organisations, I mean, organisations themselves are just a function of the behaviour of everyone who works there. So, you know, if we're talking about innovative companies, what we're saying is that people within those companies are behaving in innovative ways. And that requires widespread innovative behaviour. And so if we're we're thinking about it like that, what what we're really saying is, you know, we've got to see an organisation as a a mechanism for collaboration. Um, You know, I work with organisations that are going through... um, major changes so you know they're growing very rapidly or they're having a strategic shift or maybe even going through a merger or an acquisition um ultimately what we're talking about is a change in direction and really 
we could be talking about hundreds, thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of employees all having to change their behavior quite quickly to do things in, a, in new ways. Um, I think it, this is often oversimplified to say, you know, what we want is for all of our people to be doing this, to be behaving in exactly the same way um, to achieve our shared goals. And, you know, that, that ends up with people saying, oh, well, you know, what a challenge it is that people are different. Um, <laughs> which obviously I think, again, is a massive oversimplification. But if we go back to thinking about this thing that the organization is a mechanism of collaboration, the thing that makes it difficult is that this diverse group of people and sometimes very large groups of people, you know, they all come from, you know, they've got different skills, expertise, norms, values, their backgrounds, their biases and their perspectives. They're all incredibly different. And so I think what makes behavior change particularly difficult is taking it from the perspective that we're trying to get to a place of sameness. Um, and we see that, I think, you know, things, you know, you read about the McKinsey way or the Google way, this idea that an organization has to have a way and its people have to then conform to that way. That doesn't work because people are so incredibly diverse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and I think that, that that's, such an important point and I that businesses and we have for a long time often had you know a same a shared set of values as an example and underpinned of those values are often often behaviors or we see okay or we give an example of someone demonstrating inclusive behavior and we think others need to be following that same set of behaviors whereas actually as, as you're pointing to sameness isn't what we are necessarily trying to get to um but also I, I think that there is something very interesting around when we look at um how collectively when someone starts to behave in in a certain way that is positive and that gets reinforced by an organization whether that's through structural whether that's through leadership the impact that that can have on on others' behaviour, other people's behaviours around around that person, which really leads me on to the, my next question, um, which is really around collective intelligence and this point of um, inspiring unity, but also acknowledging difference. And I often think about this. Um, in an organization where I often see really high levels of both collaboration and inclusion, it's often ones where people are a really feel a high sense of belonging. So this high sense of unity of those that they're working around them so that there is this shared understanding, this, this shared vision. But they also are really able to celebrate their difference, celebrate their their, their um, uniqueness, and, and and I was wondering, um, Sean, if you could, you know, just share a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing in in this area and and your thoughts on that that point, and and whether that is something that can be achieved in in an organisational context. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. I think that. It, it is incredibly challenging. I think one of the particular areas of research that I focus in on is something called collaborative advantage. Now, collaborative advantage is a organizational theory that is 
really built on this idea that by leveraging the differences, the perspectives, the skills, um, and all of the learning that can be done by working with a diverse group of people, that we can actually unlock value that is held back by competition between each other. Now, the, the theory itself is often mostly applied to inter-organizational work, but actually anyone who's worked in an organization knows that inside organizations, there's plenty of, of competition as well. And so it's really the, the core of this theory is this idea that it's fun, fundamentally very difficult to do. How do you, exactly as you say, how do you respect difference, but also try to drive behavior in, in a shared direction? I think that one of the things that it's easy to forget is that the, the history of the word company is that it was once used for traveling companions. And the idea about traveling companions is that they're all going in the same direction and exactly the same in any organization. I think, um, you know, one of the mistakes that we can often make is to think about behavior change and behavior in general as kind of mechanistic. Um, often when I'm working with my clients, we'll talk about changing behavior. And the thing that comes immediately there to their mind is the incredible work that um, has been done around nudges. Now, nudges, I think, are they're phenomenal. They're uh, incredible um, initiatives that you can run. They focus very much on individual decisions made in very specific circumstances. So you can influence someone's choice from A to B by applying specific mechanisms within a very limited area Organizational behavior is hundreds of choices by thousands of people every single day. And so exactly as you say, that this idea of belonging, um, I think, can really help to drive common behavior, but that is expressed by individuals in a way that's relevant for them. And, you know, on, on a very basic level, that that's expertise. You know, I, I'm an engineer and you work in HR and we come from different, we come from different skill sets, but much wider than that, there's all kinds of novel perspectives that come from each individual's unique mix of values and backgrounds and the value that they can add, I think, um, can be celebrated by organizations and, and must be if we remember that the whole point of an organization is to create a mechanism for collaboration between these different groups of people. And I was really interested in what you were talking about there, Sean, in, in this point of uh, nudges. And and I was wondering if you had any examples of a nudge or a series of, of nudges within, you know, a, a, either a small team or, or, or a larger organisation where th those nudges have had helped that group really collaborate. So... For example, I think one of the places where I see nudges really working in organizations are to do with specific initiatives on sustainability. So I worked with an organization that was trying to reduce its waste. And what they were able to do in that particular situation was reduce the number of printed pages that they had by putting reminders in timely places for people not to print out unnecessary documents and also not to throw away paper but recycle it they, they were able to use very simple very but very sophisticated nudges to make sure that in the moments where they knew people will be making a very clear a b decision between utilizing uh, a resource or not recycling or recycling they were able to do that and at, for example in the organization that i work at, at the moment 
one of the things that happens is that um, when you walk into the cafeteria, there's a sign there that says, we wasted X amount of food yesterday by people over putting too much food on their plates. Um, so please take less. And they've shown that that has a massive reduction in the amount of wasted food that they have in the cafeteria. And I think if we're thinking about a nudge like that for a very specific goal in a very specific situation, I think that can be highly effective. And Sean, do nudges need to be specific and and simple? This is sometimes the, the question I, I, I get asked. So I think at the core of this, I think that what we what we term as nudges, I think I think of them as kind of individual initiatives. I don't think that you can change organizational wide behavior um, on a on a mass scale in a way that is sustainable and uh, adaptable to every individual just using nudges. I think nudges can be really useful for very specific areas, but they they sit within a broader strategy of how we change behavior. I think that what ultimately I think we're trying to do when we're changing behavior within organizations is influence the the the, or, the organization's identity. So essentially um, influence how people feel about what it means to work in a place. Now, you can do a sustainability initiative by um, encouraging people not to print at the moment when they press print, and that's really effective. But what make what takes that from a single behavioral change, looking at one small simple thing, and takes that to a sustainable organizational wide change, is to build that into the fabric of the organization through its identity. And the, the way I think you do that is by creating opportunities for employees to co-create ways of working, for example, around sustainability, um, by ensuring that there's platforms for them to shape the identity of the organization around sustainability yes yeah no i see and 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 i think as um just building upon what what you were saying there sean a nudge is definitely and and we use it a lot in in inclusion you know exactly the same principle as you were describing in that sustainability example something that's very specific and i think that often um i my view and you know the psychology research we, we've done is that people are generally really good intent have really good intentions um and so i i don't want you know i would like to try to mitigate my bias i would like to be an inclusive leader most people would uh, support that, that 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 argument but these things are very big the ve- they become really abstract and as well intended as any leader may be, you then get back into the workforce, you're doing all of the things that you need to do, you're making the hundreds of decisions each day, the thousands of decisions that you need to each week, um, and you've not got the mechanism or the strategy to shift your behaviour, whereas actually, you know, that same concept of taking something that's really specific, and we use the example often in, in inclusion of, if you are a leader in every situation always ask for someone's point of view before you speak so it's very specific it's very simple it's something that everyone can adopt you adopt it very differently depending on you know on on your style perspective 
but it's something that you then and, and then the nudges kind of sit around how you reinforce that all the time so how are you reinforcing that in the way that board meetings are structured so the order in which the leaders are, are speaking so the ceo never speaks first the ceo always speaks last so you know what are the nudges that you're putting in place to reinforce that you know that's that that's something that, that, that that's very specific um but it's only one um, one part part of it. And my, my next question, Sean, is um, we've when we've we've talked previously, and 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 you mentioned earlier this point around um, the idea of collaborative advantage over competitive advantage. And I absolutely agree. You know, you see this a lot within industries across organisations, but also it happens with within organizations and the structures that we have in the most part in the corporate space in the in the business world even when businesses have really tried very hard to start to get teams to think you know notions such as teams first and you know various initiatives that i'm sure we've, lots of us have come up against in organizations we've been part of or involved with but that's re it is really really hard because the way that people, the way that we structure our salary, our compensation, our benefits, our bonus, the way that we design our buildings within a workplace, the way that we create different teams and how they their KPIs is set, everything in an organisational context, for the most part in businesses is set up for competition and competitive advantage, and. Um, how does an organization just start to move from a different mindset but but putting in some some effective strategies for moving from competitive advantage to collaborative advantage i think um firstly and form for firstly i think um really what we're trying to do is change this idea that an organization is a machine um, I think that we can we can really get too bogged down in the, the sort of mechanistic elements. You know, we can't change parts of an organization like we can parts in a car by just simply upgrading them. I think a better analogy is thinking about an organization more like the way that a gardener looks at a garden. Things are interconnected, they need to be cultivated over time. Um, and in a way, we, we know that when we're talking about behavior in organizations, when we're talking about changing in organizations, we know we're gonna make mistakes. We know we're gonna leave people out. And I think that that's okay, as long as that's a starting point, not an ending point. And that's why I think we need to go beyond sort of thinking about this as an initiative and more about how do we build into the fabric of the organization, the ability to evolve and change over time. So it's, it's this idea of saying, you know, if we go back to this idea of, the company as, as a group of people traveling in the same direction. You know, I've worked in organizations where they've give, shown me their previous initiatives and said, okay, well, we're able to change 80% of people's behavior. So we see this as success. And I'm thinking, well, actually that means one in five of your people are going in the wrong direction in this, in this area. That, that for me is not a success because it's a great start, but it's not a successful end. And I think if we think about these things as iterative, knowing that we're going to make mistakes, knowing that we're not going to get it right every time, but have the agility, build in the agility to continue to evolve 
sometimes the one in five people who really don't agree with what we're saying actually have an incredibly valid perspective that we need to take on. And so by seeing who doesn't agree with us and engaging with them directly, we actually enable our, our programs and our initiatives and our ongoing way of, of running our organization, that, that actually enriches it in an, in an incredible way. And I think that's often overlooked. Um, you know, I, I think there are some very specific things that, that organizations can do to, um, to, to facilitate that. And I, I think one of, the, one of the great things that I've been able to do with a lot of the organizations that I work for is design effective, what we call participatory architecture. So participatory architecture is a, it's, it's actually a term that comes from political science and it's, it's often used within local authorities and local governments to, to talk about people's assemblies so that people feel bought in and, and participating in the governance um, of their area, their locality. But I think we can apply this kind of thinking within organizations. Um, and so participatory architecture, I think, is incredibly important. Um, people often say, okay, is participatory architecture, is that just getting everyone together so they can have a chin wag and we're going to end up in a talking shop and it's going to go round and round in circles? You know, is it, you know, a horse designed by committee is a camel? You know, so are we, are we going to get to the right answer? And I think that for me is what I say it is the difference between good and bad participatory architecture. And actually, I think if you look in organizations, a lot of them have participatory architecture already, but it's not particularly doing its job. So I think, you know, it's often done by, you know, human resources or human capital or uh, internal communications in, in many instances, where they're actually listening and working with employees to garner their perspectives and points of view, but they're not necessarily using those spaces in the right way. Mm -hmm. And there's so, so much of, of what you were just saying there that, that really prompted some, some thoughts in my, my mind. Um, and the first one is the point that you made of um, participatory architecture isn't this consultation that everyone has to be involved in every decision. And I talk around this a lot in, in, in the space of, you know, creating inclusive cultures doesn't mean everyone has to be involved in the decision making process. However, what you do want to really start to create and, and foster is that you're getting those perspectives that you wouldn't have heard norm normally around your leadership group or whichever team that, 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 you're, that you're leading. But from a practical sense, Sean, how does a business do that? So, so how do you, because often the viewpoints that you want are the ones that might be most difficult for you to hear. How do you, yeah, any advice or thoughts from a, from a practical perspective of how you start to build that into the, the system of, of, of an organisation? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is exactly where we come back to this, the, the gardener cultivating the garden. I think that um, in, this, in this situation, it's not about starting a forum that immediately attracts exactly the right people on the first time around. It's, it's about building a community around certain areas of interest within your organization and allowing those to organically evolve. And you, you can, there are people in every organization right now who know exactly who would be interested, who would have um, a contrary 
um, perspective to add, who would who would be difficult in the room but valuable? And I think it's about tapping into that, allowing those communities within your organization to to bring in the right people. That takes time. It's not something that you can set up for next week, but I think it's something you could start right now and over time evolve those communities to make sure that you're getting the right the right information from them and the right people in the room to 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 create that information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, just concluding, and and again, this this point on how do you um, really effectively get those different perspectives in, in in the in the room, but also because sometimes these these this concept of getting the different perspectives and collaboration, I think at the surface some people. You, or, or one could argue actually aren't they are we contradicting because if we collaborate doesn't that mean that we all need to be going in the same direction and if we're saying we want different perspectives are there any examples of where you've worked with a business or where you've seen either a government level as do something successful where we've actually had really really enabled very very different perspectives to then collaborate effectively to to an to an endpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, one of my one of the businesses that I worked with uh, about five years ago, um, they were going through a, a massive amount of growth, and actually, what they were doing was acquiring organisations around the world from different from different countries, different continents. They'd gone from working in someone's garage to having six offices on three different continents. And they, the reason I worked with them was because they said, we're growing so fast, we need to decide who we are um, so that we don't lose that magic of who we are. And the first thing they had tried to do was bring everyone together to decide on the, the function of, okay, who are we? And what they found was when they put it up, some people were very upset about it. They, they felt that it was a rejection of you know the, the history that they'd come from. So what we ended up doing with them was setting up a number of different fora around um, specific aspects of their business and, and brought in lots of different people to have essentially managed arguments about what it was. And, and I think this is what it comes back to. What we're essentially doing there is setting that up, this participatory architecture that gives everyone a platform. Now, I think the really important thing was to say that at the end of the day, the leaders of that organization made the decision, but they made the decision based on a lot of conflicting, contradictory evidence that they needed to then experience to understand what decisions to make. You know, I think, um, you know, I've worked with organizations and we all have worked with organizations that spend a great deal of time and resources on market research or business intelligence. Now, employees and their views is an incredibly rich source of information that is incredibly valuable for guiding business decisions and i think that enabling leaders to hear those those stories those personal feelings um but in a way that enables them to make effective decisions uh, i think that's what these these sort of participatory architectures can do thank you Sean, and I think that, that that last point really helps sum, summarise um, 
that intelligence that is in sits within an organization and the role of of a leader is to ensure that you're not missing some of those valuable data points that you're not missing some of those valuable insights and that for me is is why it is so incredibly important that a leader creates and fosters a culture and environment that is one that is collaborative and inclusive and that's why it gives an organization a commercial advantage um because it, it's ultimately then really really drawing out that that business that market intelligence those that insight that actually so often we have within a business already but we've just not created either the right right systems processes or behaviors that enable us to hear all of those perspectives gather all of those insights data points to really ensure that that as many times as possible we make the right decision and we reduce the number of significant mistakes and we all know and there's a huge and really interesting psychology around this notion of making sure we're making small mistakes um but 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 you know th this whole process um and um this participatory architecture enabling you to gather that data in a way that you can make small mistakes but you're never going to make a have a catastrophe as as a as a business. Sean, I, I just wanted to um, say thank you so much for spending the time and speaking to me today. Um, it's been really interesting conversation. We know um, there is a huge piece for for, for organisations at the moment to really focus on their inclusion agendas um, and sometimes that can, that can get lost in in the why are they doing this and the pieces that we've we've talked talked about here today particularly this point which i'm really interested in on collaborative advantage um, and participatory architecture these are some of the kind of theories and, and premises that that shows actually why does this give a business a competitive advantage yes of course i think it is the right thing to do and i think businesses are becoming much more aware of aware of their sustainable sustainable kind of moral role within society but also actually this just makes commercial sense to be thinking about the way that they're operating and potentially needing to shift the way we've operated in a corporate space for the last 50 100 years absolutely Jan. thank you so much for having me I, you know i i couldn't agree more with with your points i think you know at the end of the day um you know this is not this is not just doing things in a moral way but it's about doing things in that are good for business and by aligning those two things that's how we make change not just in organizations but more broadly in our societies i think no absolutely thank you again sean and um we hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast <laughs>